Welcome to the Best Interest Podcast, where we believe Benjamin Franklin's advice that an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, both in finances and in your life. Every episode teaches you personal finance and investing in simple terms. Now, here's your host, Jesse Kramer. Welcome to episode 66 of the Best Interest Podcast. My name is Jesse Kramer. Later in the episode, Andy Hill will be joining me. Andy is the creator behind Marriage, Kids, and Money, a website and podcast where the young family wealth building conversation takes place. Andy and frequently his wife, Nicole, discuss topics at the intersection of family and finance. And before we get to that, I want to shout out this week's review of the week. Uh, Fish677658 wrote in and said, Super easy listen, super informative, and all-around good material. I also like the versatility Jesse brings to his podcast, and I always learn something new after each listen. Whether you're new to investing or a seasoned veteran, Jesse definitely provides value to all his listeners. Good stuff. Keep it up. Fish, thank you for the kind words. If you're listening to this, send me an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog, and I'll get you hooked up with uh, some nice best interest swag, a gift, something like that. Now, before we get to Andy Hill, let's talk about some uh, family financial topics that we've discussed before on the Best Interest blog. First, this comes from an article called 12 Financial Planning Topics for New Parents. And as you might guess, this applies to new parents. So if you are expecting children or someday might have children, or maybe there's someone in your life who has children, send them this podcast or send them the linked article in the show notes and we'll talk about the 12 financial planning topics right now. After all, children can be incredibly expensive. It's vital for those new expenses to be part of the plan in your household budget. Once your children are born, there are important long-term safety nets you should be implementing. We'll get into some of those. And thankfully, this is an important topic, there are many tax breaks available to parents to ease the financial burden of raising kids. So I would suggest you make sure you're capturing those tax benefits and we'll talk about them too. My wife, Kelly, and I were at that stage of life where most of our close friends and family have at least one, maybe two or more young children. For those wondering, we're, we're 33 years old. And in many of the conversations that we're having with our friends or family, th- those young parents, I've realized a trend. Many parents are similar in that they have the same financial questions and concerns revolving around raising their children. So I wanted to provide the best financial tips I could find for new parents. Some of the best financial practices, they they stay the same before or after you have kids, but there are many big changes. So let's start with those. Let's start with the big financial topics that are going to be changing from before till after you have children. The first one, insurance coverage. When you have kids, you should be reviewing your insurance policies, specifically your health and life insurance policies to make sure that you have adequate coverage. Health insurance is important for your family's well-being. It provides financial protection against the high costs of medical care. It ensures access to necessary healthcare services. It helps cover medical expenses and it safeguards against unexpected illnesses or accidents that could otherwise result in, in some sort of significant financial burden. If you can't cover it with your bank account, you probably need insurance for it. That is a great rule across the insurance spectrum, and it's something to keep in mind. Whether it's health, life, auto, pet insurance, you name it. If you can't cover it with your bank account, you probably need insurance for it. Now, life insurance matters because it protects your loved ones financially 
in case of your untimely death. Specifically, focus on term life insurance, not whole life insurance, not indexed universal insurance, term life insurance. That advice applies to 99.9% of you listening. Despite what some people on TikTok might try to tell you, life insurance is not a substitute for proper investing. They're two separate things. Life insurance protects your family against your untimely death, and investing helps grow your money for the long run. You shouldn't mix and mingle those two things. Term life insurance policies, they provide only the life insurance portion that, that you want. The other uh, insurance policies I mentioned, like whole or index universal life, they try to tie together life insurance and investing into one product. And as a result, they're subpar at both. They're not very good at, at the insurance side of things or at the investing side of things. So just keep it separate. Look at term life insurance. If you do own your own home, if you have a car, you might want to look at appropriate property and auto insurance coverage too. All right, the next topic, child raising and child care costs. Very, very expensive. The Brookings Institute estimates that the average middle income family with two children will spend about $300,000 to raise a child. Granted, this was for uh, data published in 2015. So the odds are that that number's gone up since then. Part of their estimate did include 4% inflation per year. So if we do a little math, crunch the numbers, basically what we're talking about is something to the order of sixteen dollars to $17,000 per year. That's measured in today's 2023 $20, dollars every single year from the time the child is born until the time they turn 18. sixteen dollars to $17,000 per year. Now we can break that down a bit more. For example, if you need outside childcare, right? If you need daycare, babysitting, whatever you want to call it, the early years of parenting are likely to be the most financially strenuous. According to a site called Lumine, the average childcare cost in the US is just shy of $15,000 per year or $1,250 per month. That's for, you know, full-time childcare while the parents are off working. And according to the website Zipia, about 58% of parents rely on childcare like that so that they can continue to work and earn their paycheck, support the family. Granted, childcare expenses tend to decrease or disappear once your children enter school. But for those first five years, yikes, $15,000 per year on childcare. That's a huge expense to plan for. Most households cannot lightly absorb such a change in spending. The average American family earns $100,000 per household, taking home roughly $6,000 per month after taxes. $1,200 per month on daycare, that's 20% of a family's take-home pay. Another option that is financially challenging in its own right, one parent could stay home from work to care for the children. There are interesting pros and cons to consider here. While it's a hardship to go down to one salary, it's also hard to value the benefit of all that extra family time. And then after thinking about these daycare and, and childcare costs, there are diapers and formula and strollers and car seats and clothes that kids outgrow in three months. The list goes on and on. These kids, kids are extremely expensive and those expenses require important planning, important budgeting to make sure that you can cover them if and when you have children. The next topic, education. Start planning for your children's future education early on. At The Best Interest, we wrote a complete breakdown of 529 plans a few years ago. We'll link that in the show notes below. 
529 accounts are the gold standard for education savings due to their flexibility and tax advantages. Regular contributions to such accounts can help alleviate the financial burden of higher education expenses later on. Another college account that you might have heard of is called a Coverdell account, like the computer brand, Coverdell. Those are education-focused, tax-efficient accounts, but they're generally suboptimal compared to 529 plans, and they should only be used if you are fully maximizing a 529 plan's potential. The next topic, estate planning. When you have kids, you should consider creating or updating your estate plan. Now, we'll get into the specifics of what that means below, but estate planning, it helps avoid potential conflicts and ensures that your wishes as parents are followed. For example, you'll want to designate legal guardians for your minor children, ensuring that they are cared for by a trusted individual if something were to happen to you. This is a challenging conversation. Who do you want to watch over your kids? And do those people, do those potential guardians, do they want to take on that responsibility? You need to have that conversation with them and then make sure that it's written in your will. You should also create or update your will to dictate how your assets, those financial accounts, property, personal belongings, how your assets should be distributed in case of your untimely death. Additionally, you might look into setting up trusts to protect and manage assets for the benefit of your children until they reach a certain age or milestone. You'll also want to consider updating beneficiaries on your qualified investment accounts, things like IRA, 401k, and the beneficiaries on your insurance policies. When you have kids, when your family grows, you want to make sure that you review these documents and that they still are written in a way that follows your wishes. Here's a quick ad, and then we'll get back to the show. Did you know my written blog, The Best Interest, was nominated for 2022 Personal Finance Blog of the Year, and it's been highlighted in The Wall Street Journal, Yahoo Finance, and on CNBC? I love writing, especially when that writing is to share financial education, and I usually write one or two articles per week. You can read them all at bestinterest.blog. Again, the web address is bestinterest.blog. Check it out. The next topic, long-term financial goals. You had goals before you had kids, and you probably still have many of those goals, but your timelines might have shifted a few years because you now have children. It's essential to set and keep your long-term financial goals. This could include saving for retirement, buying a home, or some other milestone. If you can balance it all, start contributing to your retirement accounts as early as comfortable. Take advantage of employer matches into your retirement plans. Consider consulting with a financial planner for long-term investment or planning strategies. The next topic, children and taxes. Whether you file your own taxes or you work with an accountant, make sure you understand and are benefiting from the tax code. Parents typically pay much less in taxes than those without dependent children. For example, there's the child tax credit. The child tax credit is a tax benefit that reduces the amount of tax owed for eligible parents. As of 2023, the credit is up to $2,000 per qualifying child under the age of 17. That credit is partially refundable, meaning that even if the credit exceeds your tax liability, you may be eligible for a tax refund. Next, the Earned Income Tax Credit, or EITC, is a refundable tax credit that benefits lower-income working parents with earned income under $59,000 per year. The credit amount increases with the number of qualifying children, and eligibility is based on income and filing status. You could also think about the Child and Dependent Care Credit, especially if you are paying for childcare. 
Parents who pay for the childcare expenses in order to work or seek employment, they may qualify for this child and dependent care credit. This credit can help offset a portion of eligible childcare expenses with a maximum credit of up to $3,000 for one child or $6,000 for two or more children. There are also education-related tax benefits, things like the American Opportunity Credit and the Lifetime Learning Credit. These credits help offset the costs of higher education and certain qualifying educational expenses. Long story short, if you're a parent, you should be paying less tax, so make sure you're taking advantage of that fact. So far, these topics that we've covered, insurance coverage, child care costs, education costs, estate planning changes, children, and taxes, these are all financial topics that frequently change from before having kids to after having kids. But then there are some financial topics that shouldn't change too much after having kids, but they're still important to think about. One of them being budgeting. My budgeting rule is quite simple. You can plan your expenses ahead of time. You can track your expenses after you've spent them. You could choose to do both, but you should not choose to do neither. You need to do something. Personally, I use YNAB, You Need a Budget. Helps me measure, update, track, plan ahead. You can do whatever you want. As long as you're somehow tracking the data of your expenses, whether before you spend or after you spend, that's probably good enough. Budgeting is crucial, especially after adding these massively expensive children to your family. Budgeting helps you track your income and expenses, ensuring you can meet your family's needs and save for the future. As an example, Kelly and I, we moved to a bigger house this past summer and we're talking about having kids. And you better believe that planning our budget is a huge part of that conversation. A similar topic, an emergency fund. Hopefully you've had an emergency fund before you have children. Now that you have children, you still need that emergency fund. It might change in size though. How big should your emergency fund be? Typically it's in the range of three to 12 months worth of living expenses. That range is all a function of how rehirable you are if you lost your job. So let me explain that. Let's say you work in a career where your expertise is in high demand. If you happen to lose your job, maybe your company goes out of business, because your expertise is in high demand across your industry, you are pretty rehirable. You'll likely find a job within a few months. So for you, a three or four month emergency fund might be sufficient because that's the amount of time where you'd likely find a new job. But if you'd rather take your time with a long, exhaustive job search, uh, maybe you have a specialty where there's only a few jobs like yours around the country, and if you've lost your current job, you'd want to take your time making sure that you found the right new job. Maybe you need a 12-month or longer emergency fund to ensure that ends meet. Now that you have kids, whatever one-month expenses used to be, it's surely gone up. So your emergency fund needs to go up accordingly. Another topic, debt management. Debt can be this silent financial killer. My opinion, unlike Dave Ramsey's, is that not all debt is bad, but you should certainly avoid debt if you can, especially if you have, you know, little rugrats running around your house to distract you from paying it off. Prioritize paying off high interest debts, such as credit card debt or personal loans. Don't take on unnecessary debt and establish a plan to become debt-free over time. The best medicine is prevention and the second best medicine is decisive action. So now that you have kids or you're planning to have kids, make sure that you have a debt payoff plan in place. Finally, there are some unique financial topics related to kids. For example, the first one that comes to mind is special needs planning. 
parents of children with special needs, they should consider financial planning specific to their circumstances. It might include certain government benefits, setting up special needs trusts, uh, ensuring long-term care and support for their children's unique needs. Thankfully, there are fiduciary financial planners who specialize and focus on this very topic. Another interesting, unique one, digital management and identity protection. In today's very digital age, parents should consider their children's digital assets, including online accounts, social media profiles, and digital files. As part of estate planning, designating someone to manage or have access to these assets in case of your incapacity or death, it's important to protect and preserve these online assets. Children can be targets of identity theft. Parents should take steps to safeguard their children's personal information and be vigilant about potential fraud or misuse of their identities. Lastly, there are other investing accounts specific to children that we haven't talked about yet today. We already covered 529 education plans, but you may want to consider custodial accounts. Two well-known ones are called the UGMA and the UTMA, the UGMA or the UTMA. These accounts allow parents to invest directly on behalf of their children, typically with some small tax advantages. And then once the children reach their age of majority, which is 18 in most states, the children gain full custody of the accounts. For this reason, custodial accounts should be used with some caution. It's pretty easy for $40,000 worth of UGMA money to turn into a new Jeep Wrangler as soon as your children turn 18. The next one, Roth IRAs for kids. If a child has earned income, they may be eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. Roth IRAs are awesome. Contributions are made with after-tax money, but then grow tax-free, and qualified withdrawals in retirement are also tax-free. So Roths are a very powerful tool for long-term savings and investing in a child's future. But we have to go back a step because to qualify for a Roth IRA, your children need earned income and they need to be filing taxes on that income. Odd jobs like mowing lawns or babysitting, those do qualify as long as the income is reported in their taxes. And for teens, official W-2 summer jobs also qualify. Now, some of you might be thinking, my kids don't want to invest. That's so boring. They want to spend money on gas or go out to eat with their friends, do fun things. You know, that's what they want to spend money on. I get it. That's why in some cases I've heard of generous, forward-thinking parents considering this following loophole. Let's say your son, Johnny, he earns $4,000 over the summer as a lifeguard. Now, you want Johnny to go have fun with his money. Maybe he needs to save some for college, but you don't want him to feel like he has to put his money into a Roth IRA. That's fine. Well, in that case, the generous, forward-thinking parents will offer to contribute $4,000 to Johnny's Roth IRA. As long as Johnny reports his income, there's nothing wrong with the solution. Now, Johnny's able to keep his $4,000 to do the things that any teenager wants to do, but he's also getting $4,000 in his Roth IRA because his parents are nice and generous. By the time Johnny's done with college, age 22, he might already have $20,000 plus worth of contributions in his Roth IRA. It's not inconceivable for that amount of money alone, $20,000, to grow to over $300,000 of completely tax-free money by the time Johnny retires in about 40 years. That's an incredible gift. So again, not everybody's going to be able to do it. Not everybody wants to do it. Giving them free money. Some parents say like, you know, I don't want to spoil my kids and give them money for free. But it's something to think about. 
and it's a long, long-term gift, right? It's a 40-year gift. If you're giving a if you're giving a 19-year-old Roth IRA money, they can't touch it for 40 years. By the time they do receive that money, I'm sure they will have perspective and will appreciate it very much. Now, kids are great. As we've talked about here, they are also quite expensive. So hopefully these financial planning ideas for new parents will help you navigate your parental future. All right, guys, and now it's time to bring on Andy Hill. Andy is the award-winning family finance coach behind Marriage, Kids, and Money, a platform dedicated to helping young families build wealth and happiness. Andy's advice and personal finance experience have been featured in major media outlets like CNBC, Forbes, MarketWatch, Kiplinger's Personal Finance, and NBC News. With millions of podcast downloads and video views, Andy's message of family financial empowerment has resonated with listeners, readers, and viewers across the world. When he's not talking money, Andy enjoys being a soccer dad, singing karaoke with his wife, and relaxing on his hammock. Andy, we're going to have to now add the Best Interest podcast to that major media outlet. Thank you for joining us today. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Jesse. I appreciate it. So I thought, Andy marriage, kids, and money. Let's at least tackle things in that order. Maybe marriage first, kids second. So starting with marriage, what exactly is a money language? Oh yeah. I I love this term money language. I think it's just a, you know, maybe derived a little bit from uh, Gary Chapman's book, The Love Languages, uh, Five Love Languages. I really like that book. Helps you kind of determine the way you like to be Loved as an individual in a, in a marriage, uh, you know, there's different ways to do that. You can either be a words of affirmation person, which is totally me because I love when people give me compliments, especially my wife, or, you know, a time spent person or, or gifts or things like that, depending on, on, on how you like to be loved. I think money language could also fall into that same, you know, kind of definition. Like, how do you like to talk about money or how do you feel about money when, when people talk about it? You know, depending on what type of relationship you're in, Money could be almost a swear word in your mm. in your relationship. This could be something that people find a lot of stress when they talk about money. And I know a lot of people who have that background. And then other people find like, hey, when I talk about money, it just makes me happy enough to have a podcast about it. Right, Jesse? Yeah. <laughs> so it, and there's everywhere in between, whether you're stressed talking about it or really having joy when you talk about it because of the possibilities and the optimism that can come with it. I think when you are examining your partner, your relationship, or whoever you're with, or maybe even just a business colleague about their their conversations about money. It's important to know their money language and how they like to talk about it, as well as how you like to talk about it and understanding um, how you like to, to move forward. So then in a perfect world, two members of a couple have very similar money languages. But in reality, I'm sure there are often gaps to bridge in that money language conversation. And so from that point, once you've had that initial intro, like, hey, here's my money language, what's Mm -hmm. your money language, then is the next step kind of that classic relationship building step of let's find ways to meet in the middle or let's find ways to at least understand one another and give grace where needed and and that kind of thing? Or, Or is there kind of are there some defined next steps that you've discovered before? I like your your thought there, Jesse. I think that uh, it all starts with conversation, right? So, I mean, we can all be who we are when we come into relationships. You know, I'm fixed. This is the way I've always been. And yeah, that can work for a little while. But really, you're coming into a relationship as 
two halves and then you're going to make a whole, right? You're, you're coming together. So you have to take your strengths and your weaknesses into an account when you get into a relationship like this. And I've learned that from the hard knocks of, of, of what, what, 13 years of marriage now that I, when I think that, oh, my way is the right way, you know, she's just going to have to learn to get used to it. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> You got you got to have empathy. You got to think from their perspective. You got to think how they are feeling when you're speaking the way you are, or at least the the approaches that you're having. And I've found that to be the best way going forward. I'm not saying be a doormat in your relationship and just do whatever your partner wants to do. It's equally important to voice your opinion and make sure that you're heard because doing it the opposite way could also feel very painful when you're feeling like you're not heard or you're not being seen. So you have to do find that middle ground, as you said, Jesse, of like, okay, well, you know, here's what I'm coming into the relationship with, and here's what they're coming into the relationship with. How can we find a good middle ground that helps us to get where we both want to go? Maybe it's not the straightforward path that we choose, but at least it's one that we can both get there together and feel that harmony in your relationship. Sometimes, Andy, I'll be perusing Reddit or some similar website, (laughs) and I'll see someone and I like a personal finance forum, and they say, just went on a first date last night, didn't go well. I think it's important to bring up personal finance. She didn't want to talk about it, never seeing her again. I'm like, well, that, that's because it was a terrible idea. You shouldn't talk about it on a first date. But then I also see stories sometime of people saying, we got married, we've been married for a year, and I just found out my husband is in terrible credit card debt. Mm. And I think to myself, ooh, that conversation needed to happen well before you got married. So let's talk about that. When is the right time for two people in a relationship to have these financial conversations. I think if we talk about finances, maybe we can talk about it in two different ways. I think when folks like us, maybe somebody with an engineering mindset and somebody who likes looking at spreadsheets a little bit, when we talk about talking about personal finance, you and I are talking about numbers, man. You're talking mm-hmm. we're talking about how much debt you have, what's your net worth, you know, like how far along are you on your investing journey? And then when other people talk about money, they talk about what money can actually get for them. So that's mm-hmm. Time freedom, that is the ability to maybe stay at home with your kids when you raise them, or the ability to go on vacations when you please, you know, the lifestyle things that money can provide. Now, I would suggest maybe for folks like you and I who are a little bit more numbers set and then for the, for the Reddit person that might disregard the person after the first <laughs> conversation, were you boring them with spreadsheets and your math? You know, it's like, yeah, that could be a kind of a bummer first date. But what is that math? What are those numbers that you're working on, what are those going to do to help you have a better life, help your potential partner have a better life? Those are more fun conversations when you're like, okay, uh, you know, we built our net worth to $400,000. That sounds, that sounds kind of cool to me and you, but what does that mean? What does that mean? How how is that going to set you up for financial success in the future? How is that going to set you up for less stress, more fun, more options, you know, things like that. I think if we can turn our conversations a little bit more that way, I think maybe you'd be winning the second date a little bit more. (laughs) I know that uh, I've failed in this many times with my numbers mindset, especially with my wife where I'm like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we become debt free within a year? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, we pay off $50,000 of student loans and car loans, and then we'd be debt-free. And she's like, what does that even mean? Who cares? Mm. Like, what does that mean? Well, okay, let me try to rephrase that to my wife after, after realizing that I totally failed with the conversation. It was like, what about if we paid off this debt in about a year, and then you'd be able to go part-time when our daughter comes into the world? Wouldn't that be cool? 
And then she started paying attention. So it's more of like a lifestyle conversation or what do you get out of it as opposed to just dollars and cents. I really like that a lot. And that almost goes back to the love language itself, right? Which is, it's about how to frame the situation. And some people deal in numbers. Some people deal in feelings. Some people deal in, well, how does this affect the, the events or the time I have in my life? Do you have a thought, Andy, on, let's imagine a, a prototypical couple from first date to maybe 10 years into marriage, to where you are, 13 years into marriage. Now, somewhere along that line, you need to broach the conversation, and then maybe you need to dive a little bit deeper, and then there comes a point when you join finances completely. Mm -hmm. Whether it's from your personal experience with you and Nicole, or maybe just the many people who you've helped from your financial coaching point of view, when are some good times to really start to combine those finances into one cohesive unit? Yeah, yeah. I, 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 this might sound pretty traditionalist, but I really do like once you've made that commitment to marriage to find that time to combine things. I've seen some hardships from people who have not been married, but then combined things, whether it's home ownership together mm -hmm. or finances in general, and then they have a messy breakup. And that's it's not that's before marriage. So I, I've seen a lot of those tough things. And of course, you know, I'm sure there's positive stories too with people combining beforehand. I, it seems to be from the couples that I've spoken to, as you, as you mentioned in my own personal experience, that working towards having some conversations in the dating and then engagement period where maybe it gets a little bit more serious during engagement. Okay, how are we going to be combining things when we move in together, when we, when we combine these things together or have all of our assets or all of our debts together? What is our plan? That's sort of the engagement period. I would say dating is, you know, what, what do you love? What do you enjoy? How are we going to do these things together? But yeah, I mean, eventually date three, four, five, six, seven, if you're getting a little bit more serious, it's good to know some of those debts, some of those assets, you know, from a, from a prenup kind of side of things. If, if somebody's got a lot of debt, that might be something you want to consider for a mm -hmm. prenup. Or if somebody's got mm -hmm. a lot of assets, you also might want to consider a prenup too. So having some of those conversations as you get more serious in the dating process. But then, yeah, as you get married, combining things together can be beneficial financially. You, you came on my show as, a, mm -hmm. as an expert to talk about that, all the benefits that come with that. But again, I have had a lot of people that uh, have had success separating some accounts, I feel like it's getting to a point right now where there's a lot of good conversation around autonomy with your fun money or your travel money and not having to have some big financial marriage conversation when it comes to that type of decision. But when it comes to you know your, your bills, your big four expenses, when you're talking about being a family, a lot of those things just make sense to be combined. So you tackle all those things together. But Having some autonomy is is not bad when it comes to different maybe budget line items to allow you to have some autonomy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and going back to something you said there, Andy, I've got a few friends I can think of who they did make a major joint financial mm -hmm. commitment pre-marriage, home ownership being a great one. Mm -hmm. And I think in today's society, the way the relationships develop and evolve over time, maybe some of that is getting pushed later into our life. You know, people aren't getting married until they're their later 20s, their early 30s. They're dating for a long period of time before committing to marriage. And so I, I can understand why it might make sense for someone to say, let's move in together. Let's buy that house together, even if we're not married. Totally get that point. But marriage is not only a, a symbol of love. It is also this legal agreement in the eyes of government mm -hmm. that affects the way our financial assets are viewed. Yes. And so for anybody listening out there, 
if you do decide to make serious joint financial commitments pre-marriage, I understand. Make sure you're going into those commitments with eyes wide open, though, and understand that if things don't turn up rosy, if they don't go the way you want them to go in the relationship, you might be giving yourself a can of worms that you later have to unwind, unfortunately. Absolutely. Yeah, I've seen some some legal battles. I've seen some involving a, the, a divorce attorney, even though you're not, not getting a divorce. But in order to facilitate that process, it can get sticky for sure. Right, right. I mean, speaking of divorce, let's let's hope relationships never get that far, Andy. But we do know that every relationship has some arguments, some stress. Things don't always go according to plan. We also know that finances can be one of the major stressors in a relationship. So do you have any thoughts on preventing financial fights or or if we have a financial fight, what we can do to move forward from that? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about that. Yeah. Having gone personally through marriage counseling with my wife as we've had some tough times throughout our relationship, it requires that ability to stop and have more conversations. I think that we as busy Americans, we just go, 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 and we got to get the money and we got to buy the things and then we got to go rush to the next thing. And we forget to do, we, we forget to pause and take those important moments to have the important conversations that are needed. And I think. Having a relationship, having a marriage, having a a partnership, whatever you decide it ends up being, requires you to set aside time for those important conversations. So what I suggest to people when they they partner up is setting aside at least a, whether we call it a weekly or a monthly money date where you're having conversations about your finances. And you can do this in different ways. Again, it doesn't always have to be about the numbers right away. It can be, it could start with hey, what are our collective financial goals? What are our goals as a couple? You know, you bring your goals to the table. You ask your partner to do the same thing. And then you figure out how you can combine them together and figure out ways so you can help each other get those goals. That's a great way to start a money date. So you're dreaming together as opposed to crunching numbers in an Excel sheet, even though uh, <laughs> I, you know I like doing that or whatever. But it, it, it can be a way for you to utilize the money so that you can get the goals. It's essentially, you know, I liken it to your calendar, right? We don't just go into our day and say, hey, I wonder what's going to happen today. No, we, we have a calendar and we know what our schedule looks like so that we show up on time and we get the things done. We've got the doctor's appointment. We've got the dentist appointment. These things keep us going and alive. The budget is the same thing. You make a plan for your money so that you can hit those financial goals. So I think having time set aside as a couple to talk about your financial situation the good, the bad, the ugly is really important. And when you're able to hash those things out, they can get solved. Otherwise, it festers inside and then you think about it and, you, oh, that, hey, my husband said that thing and it bothers me. I'm never going to let that go. Whew, that's a tough way to live. Right. Bringing stress inside your body and holding it in there is really, really tough on your relationship, on your health. So, in short, setting, setting aside time to have those conversations is very important. Do you mind if I ask, Andy? I th- yeah. You mentioned monthly. Is is that the frequency that that you use in your house? I would say if you're just starting off, monthly is probably a good way to start. Now, if you are, if you've got a lot more things going on, Nicole and I meet on on a weekly basis now, just because it's not just always about the money right away. It's like, what do we got going on this week? We've got mm. two kids at home. They've got activities. They've got friends. They've got birthday parties coming up. I have aging parents that need support. You know, it's like these are conversations that 
we need to have on a weekly basis. And we don't always catch them when we're, when we're running from work and picking up the kids and going to bed and we just crash. You know, I think having the, that set aside time, which we usually do on a typical Saturday morning with our coffee, we lay out everything, we get our calendar, we get our, our budget and we just say, hey, let's talk about what we need to talk about. If we do it weekly, it could take 30 minutes, uh, 60 minutes, and we, we're, we're drinking coffee anyway, so we might as well talk about what's going on in our lives. So that's been helpful for us. If we've waited towards the month standpoint, it ends up being a longer meeting, like two or three hours, and then my wife starts to roll her eyes and is like, dude, this is boring. So <laughs> yeah, you have to know your relationship. So, right, so, right. so craft it based on, uh, on your specific situation. If once a week is going to be too difficult, then try once a month, but build it up from there. I think you'll find the financial benefits and the marital benefits of getting together to have those serious conversations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think, Andy, the subjective parts of those conversations, and when I, sub when I say subjective, I think of things like, oh, what do we want to do as a couple? What are our mm -hmm. goals? Whether it's short-term goals, let's talk about the next month. What are some fun things we're hoping to do? Or maybe it's long-term goals. Like That is going to be particular to, to everybody who's listening right now. Mm -hmm. But some of the objective part of that conversation is probably going to look similar. Yeah. So I'm just thinking to myself, do you guys go over assets and debts, you know, how assets have grown, how you've paid off debts, what your income is, what your expenses have been lately, and what expenses you foresee in the near future? I mean, is that how the conversation goes? Yeah, I would say it all has to arc back to what your goals are individually as a couple. For us in the beginning, we were tracking the debts a lot more because when we had less expenses happening, less debts happening, we would get more of that time freedom. And that's what my wife wanted in the beginning. She wanted the ability to not work at this soul-sucking job that she had, and she wanted to be able to raise our kids at home. And that was a big, important thing for her. So by eliminating our debt, which we ended up tracking to saying, okay, we're going from $50,000 to $0 here. That means we have to shell out a lot less towards, towards these debts. We're going to be able to now utilize or not have to have as much income in order to live our lives. So when we eliminated the debt, we tracked that and that became part of our, our goals. So I guess it depends on your individual situation I was tracking the net worth for quite a while. She would typically roll her eyes at me and say, who, who cares? But it was something that was important to me as we made our march from negative $50,000 to a million dollars in our 30s, which was a prideful thing for me. But I do remember getting to that moment and saying, ah, she's kind of right. What? It's just a number. It really is just a number. But it's all those individual life goals in the middle of her going down to part-time work and eventually stay-at-home mom, me being able to leave my full-time job and take an adventure at a small business. These are the individual life goals that I thought, looking back, are much more important than net worth milestones along the way. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. And I love too, Andy, how the things that you thought were most important when you started some of those changed over time. The, the journey is shifting and, and often it's not really about the destination itself because what you thought was the destination didn't really end up being the most important final destination for you, right? So Absolutely. it really was, it, it was about how your journey changed and, and what you learned along the way. Exactly. Here's a quick ad and then we'll get back to the show. Serious question. Why do podcasters constantly ask for ratings and reviews? Yes, they do help highlight our shows to new listeners. They help strangers find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's totally true and a good reason to ask for ratings and reviews. But I have something more important, at least more important to me. 
I want to know if you like this stuff. I want to know if you like my podcast episodes, my monologues, my guests, the information I share with you and the stories I tell. I want to improve and make your listening more enjoyable in the process. So yeah, I would love to read your reviews. And sure, if you throw a rating in there too, that's great. If you like what I'm doing, please share it with me. It's such a great feeling to read your feedback. I'd love to read your review or see a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you. Let's change gears a little bit, Andy, and go from relationship with a life partner Mm -hmm. onto kids. This other huge part of our families. (laughs) You know, kids, I think I can speak for 99.99% of parents out there. Kids are the apple of any parent's eye. We would die for our kids. But that said, we also need to face financial facts. Kids are pretty expensive. So from your experience personally, or mm-hmm. working with clients, I mean, just how expensive are kids these days? Yeah, you, you see the estimates out there, upwards of $250,000 to raise a kid from birth to 18 years. That is, uh, it's probably about right, <laughs> but that doesn't also include college expenses if you're interested right. in helping your kid, you know, make their way through college. And college even with all the bad news out there, can still set you up depending on the degree you get and how you earn that degree with a brighter future than some individuals that don't go that route. That being said, it's all individual. You know, you craft your own future and everybody's going to do that when they're, when they're talking about kids. Now, I guess in the end, I still think it's worth it, man, to have kids. I love my kids. I cannot see my life without being a father. But that was something mm-hmm. personal to me. Like I always... I loved my parents. I still love my parents. They they raised me in a way where I was just proud to be their kid. And I couldn't wait to honor them in the same fashion and bringing grandkids in the world for them and then have me be a dad. I get to goof around. I get to pick them up for school. I get to dress like a banana on their fun run day. It's just, <laughs> it's cool. It's fun, man. I get to be the assistant soccer coach. I get to help out with PTO. It's fun. I, but I've tried to craft my life in a way where I get to spend more time with them. So it is something that I am pumped about being. It is it is, it is exhausting at times, but it is it is it is worth it. <laughs> From a long term planning point of view, let's let's imagine we have some listeners right now who are uh, a few years before you in their life path, and they are saying kids are on the horizon. Yeah, but we want to start planning now. Yeah, now, of course, everyone's going to be different depending on what they want to do for their kids, the, the, the nice things in the world they want to buy for their kids, et cetera, et cetera. But if we could apply some sort of, well, maybe, maybe you don't have to apply a number to it. Maybe we can just talk about the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can someone prepare for these big incoming expenses that are about to hit their budget? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it is, it, it comes on fast too, especially when you know, you maybe got uh, married just a couple of years before and then you're having the kids. So in the beginning, it was just your income and you were, you know, spending just for yourself. And it was like, hey, this is the amount of money I have coming in. This is the amount I'm going to spend. And then it became you and your partner. And you're like, okay, well, I've got a lot more money now to to spend with my partner here. How are we going to utilize that to, you know, give ourselves a bright future, but also still have, you know, double the fun, right? Right, right. And then, yeah, you have kids and they pop in and you're like, whoa, this is a lot more than we were expecting. So, there's a lot of costs that just come on right away. Obviously, you got to prepare for the medical expenses that happen, any time away from work that is not covered by your employer. Those are things to 
consider and make sure that you're planning for. Obviously, you know, in our country, I think there, we could make a lot of strides when it comes to maternal time off and paternal time off, but that's a subject for another day. But whether your situation uh, doesn't provide you enough financial benefits to experience that time off, it's incumbent on parents to plan and put away that money aside to, to prepare for it. But it's well worth it in, in the long run. And especially if you're preparing, because otherwise it can just be a financial stressor. So putting away money beforehand and then once the once the child arrives, yeah, there's a lot of new expenses that come in. You know, you got your diapers, you got your formula, you got the the swings that you didn't even need, you never knew you needed, right? But a lot of these things, just like everything else in our life, doesn't need to be brand new. You don't need to buy the brand new swing. You can do a lot of hand-me-downs. You know, there's a lot of great Facebook groups that can help with a lot of those things. And if you're thinking long-term, which I know a lot of parents who might be listening to this show would do, you can think about investing early. And I still think, I know it's a tough conversation right now, I still think going to college can be a great opportunity for kids in the future to have a more education and maybe move towards a career that can be very fulfilling as well as one that can provide them a good amount of income so that they can you know, make themselves have a good life. Because that's our job as parents, I believe, is to create independent little humans mm over time. Now, in the beginning, when they're babies, they depend on you all the time for everything, for their survival, for their food. But as they start to get older, they start to gain these little pieces of independence. And eventually, if they're able to be out there with a college degree and the knowledge with how to use what can be produced with that college degree, they can build wealth for themselves and create a very, very happy life. I really like that, Andy. And you mentioned something there I was thinking about asking you, I was like, well, Andy, do you have any sort of little little hacks that you might <laughs> suggest to a parent? And recently, I think it just actually published this morning, Chris Hutchins, who we both know from all the Hacks podcast, yeah. came on the Best Interest podcast. And oh, I asked him great. the question, he's got some young kids. And he said, I've got a hack for you, Jesse, the Facebook marketplace. Yes. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you he know just, it. He just said everything. He said, was, why, why buy new? You can buy lightly used. It's, it's, it's one child used one car seat for a couple years. Now the parents are selling it. It's still in great shape. You don't have to buy everything new because I mean, buying stuff for kids, it is really expensive. So oh, if yeah. you can find these ways to just save some money here and there in the long run, it's really going to add up and compound. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's say, Andy, now the kids are getting a little bit older. They're getting a little bit more independent, just like you alluded to. And, and one of the steps of teaching your kids how to be independent is eventually getting them some knowledge in financial literacy. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that you've been working on something specifically for kids and their financial literacy. But so let's, let's dive into that topic. I mean, what are your thoughts on financial literacy for kids? Yeah, I would say the fun part about kids becoming more independent is is that process. And I think it can be intimidating for people who are like, well, you know, I'm not a financial expert. I don't really know much about money. But you do know some stuff about money, right? You do know how to go to a grocery store right. and buy stuff and look at the prices. That's the first lesson right there, really. Like, okay, this thing here, this ba this bag of pistachios is $10 here at Rite Aid. This is crazy. Why would we... Oh, over at this store, it's $4. That's a, that's a money lesson right there. You know, those are conversations. So I think also shopping at the store, but also conversations around needs and wants. Like, okay, is this something that I need to buy right now? Or is this something that I want to buy right now? Having those conversations early with kids when they're thinking about, well, I really need a Nintendo Switch. Well, do you need it? 
or do you want it? And those conversations are important because once you start putting money in their hands, then they can start to understand, well, maybe I don't need it right now. I really do want to buy these shoes that I'm excited about. I do really, really, really want to be able to provide a gift to my friend for his birthday party and having those conversations early are really smart ways for people to not worry about being a financial expert, but also just utilize the knowledge that you do have so that they can learn and grow and become more independent adults. Hmm. I really like that. And then let's change gears. Let's say I'm not a financial expert. You're not talking to Jesse right now. You're <laughs> you're talking to someone out there who's got young kids. Yeah. They, they want help. They want help that they can trust mm-hmm. as far as teaching their kids some good financial lessons. Let's talk about Make My Kid a Millionaire. What is that? Yeah. So Make My Kid a Millionaire is a new course that I've developed, uh, and it is specifically for parents who are raising kids and they want to help them build wealth and happiness for the future. So I know there are a lot of parents out there that don't really feel like they have that knowledge or that that excitement on how to do this process. And so I lay it out from essentially birth to 18 years of like how we can help our kids build wealth and happiness. And it's an exciting course. I'm very excited. It's essentially like my book launch. So I'm really excited to talk about it. But I built it for about a year. And yeah, it helps people from conversations from when you're really young all the way to the teenage years and helping with regard to how to earn that money, how to save that money, even how to invest that money so that your kids have that bright future. So I'm, I'm really excited about it. That's awesome, Andy. And, and we talked about it offline before yeah. this podcast. So there will be a link in the show notes of this podcast, and then I'll make sure to throw a link to it as well on, on my website on the best interest. So so any listeners out there, we want to make sure that, that you can find this and, and learn more. And I think, Andy, you were saying earlier that there is a, a little like free preview. Is yeah. that kind of the right way of Absolutely. Yeah. Since, since it's a commitment to buy a course, I wanted to give people like, so essentially a freebie. Uh, it's called the 6040 Generational Wealth Plan. It's a short 10-minute segment of the course. So you can sort of try it before you buy it kind of thing. And then you can view that and understand through that freebie, my philosophy with regard to the 64 generational wealth plan. It's essentially any money that comes into your kids' lives, this is how we split it up so that you can build that wealth and happiness. And you can find that at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash best interest. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash best interest. Love that URL. Great great URL, Andy. (laughs) So I know we just mentioned a few URLs, Andy. Everything will be in the show notes. But if people want to reach out to you, whether it's they want to drop you an email, send you a tweet or or whatever it is on social media, how can people find you? Yeah, the best way to connect with me, if you're listening to this show, you could do Marriage, Kids, and Money as a podcast or just go to marriagekidsandmoney.com. You'll find all my connect with me opportunities there. I'd, uh, yeah, appreciate helping anybody who's out there. Fantastic. Andy Hill of Marriage, Kids, and Money. Thanks for coming on the Best Interest Podcast. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Best Interest Podcast. If you have a question for Jesse to answer on a future episode, send him an email at jesse at bestinterest.blog. Again, that's jesse at bestinterest.blog. Did you enjoy the show? Subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen. This helps others find the show and invest in knowledge themselves, and we really appreciate it. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Best Interest Podcast. The Best Interest Podcast is a personal podcast meant for education and entertainment. It should not be taken as financial advice and is not prescriptive of your financial situation.